Hi, I'm Seth Roseman. I'm Jonathan Fuller. And welcome to No Experts Allowed, where we try to make the Bible less scary, more approachable, and a more consistent means of connecting with the divine. Each week, Seth and I alternate between two roles. The non-expert takes a look at a specific Bible story and prepares for a conversation about it centered around two questions. What's the story and what's the point? Meanwhile, the storyteller joins in the conversation, reacting to the story as they hear it. Because the so-called experts aren't the only ones who can make meaning and sense of the Bible as we read it together. So if you're new to or exploring Christian faith, if you've been to seminary like us, if you want to know more about the Bible but don't want to hear another sermon, or if you're anywhere in between, this podcast is for you. Join us and let's tell a good story today. Seth, how goes it? It's going great. How about you, Jonathan? You know, about as well as it could be, I guess. I'm glad to, glad to be with you. Um, and I'm really glad today to be able to ask you a very special question. What would you do in this particular situation? Would you want to write your own autobiography, which I guess is kind of the definition of an autobiography, or write someone else's biography? And if it's someone else's biography, who would you want to write about? I think I would want to write my own biography. I've thought about this for a while, and I feel like just like weird stuff happens to me sometimes. I'm like, I feel like I need to just write this down. <laughs> yeah, it's like if it didn't come from you, no one would really believe it. Yeah, they would just be like, this is this is weird. Like, what a yeah. myth. But if I write right. it... <laughs> Do you have any examples of these weird things that you'd want to include? When I was in college, I literally walked out of the dorm room, walked 10 feet, and I got pooped on by a bird. And then I... I <laughs> Right on the top of my head. So I ran back to the dorm room, like, cleaned off, and then I went back. And I, I keep telling everyone, nobody saw me. Nobody, there was nobody else around. Only I know that I've been pooped on by a bird. But Pat, my wife Patty doesn't believe me. She's like, somebody had to see you. So like, stuff like that. Like, people, if someone else wrote that story, they'd be like, no, he definitely... People were yeah. definitely seeing him and laughing at him. But no, I swear, there was nobody else around. That's an example of God's providence, I think. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think I'm with you. I, I was thinking about, like, if I was to write someone else's biography, who I would write. And this actually might be a story for my own autobiography. Uh, but I'm thinking about the only, like, biographical project that I really remember. I'm sure I've written, like... As a history major, I'm sure I've written biographical type things. But in ninth grade English, we had to write compare and contrast biographical paper of two people in history. And we had to pick, like, we were assigned the two people. So it was like we drew a pair of names out of a hat. And I had to write a compare and con- contrast biographical paper of Judy Garland and Britney Spears. <laughs> So this was like, yeah, around 2009 when a couple years after the famous Britney Spears meltdown, I was just like, how the heck am I going to write this? And it was a fun project. I don't remember how I did or what I said, uh, but it was both very interesting people. And I think those kind of projects could be interesting, but I'm with you. I think I kind of want to write my own autobiography 
for my own sake, like just to try to actually remember stuff that's happened to me. Because there have been times lately where I've like dug into some stuff and remembered some really bizarre things. Not I've never been pooped on by a bird that I remember, but like I think that would be a good thing to like have for myself to remember certain parts of my life. It'd be a good thing to have for you know hopeful future generations, maybe of you know descendants who were interested in my life. I don't know, but. I'm not. I'm not making any announcements. To be clear, that's not an announcement. I know that was going to be your next that, question. It was. Exactly, it's exactly right. I guess look to your local bookseller in sometime in the next few years for Seth and I's autobiographies. Do you have a title for yours? I don't have. A, I don't have a title for mine off the top of my head. But what if we did one together and it was a compare and contrast? <laughs> a compare and contrast autobiography. <laughs> This would be incredible. Uh, well, I think the idea of biography, of story, of memory is really important for our conversation today about Psalm 105. So, Seth, would you go ahead and read the first part of that psalm for us? Psalm 105. Give thanks and proclaim the name of the Lord. Make known God's deeds among the peoples. Oh, sing to God. Sing praise. Tell all the wonderful works of the Lord. Glory in the holy name of God. Let hearts that seek the Lord rejoice. Turn to the Lord who is strong. Constantly seek God's face. Remember the wonders the Lord has done. Great marvels and words of judgment. O children of Abraham, God's servants. O descendants of Jacob, the chosen one. It is the Lord who is our God, whose judgments are in all the earth. The Lord remembers the covenant forever, the promise ordained for a thousand generations, the covenant made with Abraham, the oath that was sworn to Isaac. God confirmed it for Jacob as a law, for Israel as a covenant forever. I will give you the land of Cana to be your allotted inheritance. Tell us about this little translation. Yeah, so... Uh, in typical fashion, you got to bring out a new version every time we, we visit uh, a psalm. Uh, this is the Ecumenical Grail Psalter. It was released within the last 10 years, published by the Benedictine monks of Conception Abbey. So the, the Catholic Church had developed this resource to try to frame the psalms more as a prayer book uh, that made the language much more accessible and you know able for anyone in the church to pray it as you may know in the catholic church specifically that was a pretty big movement um, a lot of the church's history has been defined by only clergy if anyone being able to read and understand and experience the scriptures directly so the first version of this was released in 1963 and they released a revision around 2010 but after the 2010 revision came out a bunch of other people saw it and said this is amazing could you release an ecumenical version which just means a version that could be used across christian denominations and church traditions uh, you would think that this might be able to be more accessible for other traditions that view the psalms as scripture too like judaism and there was this interest in making the text even more 
accessible to non-Catholics. And so they really emphasized the Psalms, again, as a prayer book. They tried to keep some of that poetic flow and rhythm. That was a big emphasis. But they also emphasized using inclusive language for God. Um, there are there are still gendered images throughout, like others that are, are portrayed throughout the Psalms. But when it comes to language for God, they try to portray God in different ways so as to not gender God unnecessarily. Interestingly enough, though, the other versions are the ecumenical grail psalter is not approved for use mm-hmm. in Catholic worship services. So it is truly a, a gift from uh, Conception Abbey to the church more broadly as they attempted to do this work to make the Psalms a more accessible prayer book for their own their own people. They've kind of given us this gift as well. It's beautiful. It's very readable. Um, I think that comes through in what you read today. But as you read it, was there anything that stood out to you? The first thing is how beautiful. But I also noticed in the very first line, give thanks and proclaim the name of the Lord. Make known God's deeds among the peoples. And with Psalms, we often see some type of parallelism between the first line and the second line. So with that in mind, that's why this line stuck out to me. That if there's in some way, if the two lines are in some way parallel to each other, that we're giving thanks and proclaiming the name of the Lord, that's in some way parallel to making known God's deeds among the people. So I guess what I noticed is that in some way those are parallel to one another. Yeah, absolutely. And that that really sets the tone for this entire psalm, because what we haven't said yet is that we only read the first 11 verses of this psalm that is pretty long. It's 45 verses total. This could really be described as a more introductory section to the psalmist doing just what you were describing, making known God's deeds, kind of recounting Israel's story and history but I appreciate what you're highlighting there is there's often, I think often our talk about praise and worship is pretty disembodied from our lived experience. It's like, you know, it's kind of something that gets us out of that headspace of what we feel in the day to day. It gets us away from struggle. It's just, it's just focusing on God is some of the language that we use sometimes, but there is something both very, um, action-oriented, like making known God's deeds, not just telling them, but making them real and tangible. And there's something very public about it as well. It's not something that's hidden and isolated. The next thing I notice is there's this shift between verse 5 and verse 6. Is at the beginning, I think you were saying that like it, it reads almost like an introduction, like this is how we're going to start. We're just setting the tone. And then suddenly it starts like kind of recapping some of Israel's history. It brings up Abraham and Jacob, and then a little bit later, Isaac, uh, the movement into the land of Cana. I think it's interesting the way it sets that up first, and then moves us into thinking about how we've seen God through Israel's history, and how maybe that gives us a reason to give thanks and proclaim the name of the Lord. Yeah, absolutely. And the... The progression through the rest of the psalm, I think, recounts a lot of a lot of those stories that you'd identify as significant, not only in the biblical narrative, but to Israel's history, too. So it, it, it's interesting, the starting point for the narrative is really focused on Jacob and Jacob's 12 sons. 
And a lot of the rest of the psalm focuses first on Joseph, how Joseph was sold into slavery and ended up rising to power in Egypt, which is then the reason that his the rest of his family moved to Egypt, um, where they grew in number, and that became the foundation of the story of the Exodus. When they were enslaved, God raised up Moses to deliver them out of slavery, wander through the wilderness, and then return to the place where this all started, this promised land that they had departed because of famine, now became the place that they were and the place that they were praising God for their safe return. And so there's this really amazing, like, cyclical completion to this story. I think maybe more so than the biblical text at least gives us clues about. It's very clean. It's very neat and tidy. But it's like, God brought us out of here to save us, and God brought us back here to save us as well. Look how faithful God is. Look how amazing God is through all the things that we've been through as a people. And at the very end, there's a very simple line. It's Alleluia, which is translated to praise the Lord. It's not just an expression of praise. It's truly a command. It's a declaration to praise God uh, in response to all these things that are part of this story. You brought up an interesting point, I think, about this psalm almost as like a revisionist history. <laughs> like it kind of cleans up some of the messy parts. It's like it's like when I write my autobiography. I think it's gonna, I'm going to look really good in it. Nobody's probably going to get pooped on <laughs> by the bird. Right, exactly. It's like the way we always kind of have that temptation to do that. That doesn't escape the Psalter. It doesn't escape some of the the later historical narratives in the Old Testament too. There's like an attempt to clean some of it up, and we have to yeah. maybe we have to dig a little bit to see what's really happening. What might they be cleaning up and things? Of course, and and that's the thing here is that there's no nuance to Israel's story in this Psalm. The fact that we're identifying that, I I don't see it as a problem. I don't see it as something that's making this scripture invalid or uh, not valuable it feels more like we get an eye into how israel's origins live on in their memory and so if you think about your community of faith where you may worship hopefully safely or virtually right now but the, the what are the stories that you tell about the foundation of your congregation or what are the stories that you tell about the foundation of your family? Those may, in fact, be cleaned up. And I think we're discovering right now, especially those of us coming from non-black church traditions in the United States, we're realizing a lot of the harm that our traditions have covered up for the sake of that cyclical story. The verse that stands out to me on this, we didn't actually read it. It's just a few verses after where we stopped, but it's verse 14, which reads, God allowed no one to oppress them and admonished kings on their account. Mm -hmm. Now, Mm -hmm. it's interesting that those same verses are included in a story that recounts the Exodus, which was literally their delivery (laughs) out of slavery and oppression. But I think there's this expression of of cleanness, of, again, of a lack of nuance that is foundational to Israel's expression of praise. It's their story, their memory, their their collective recollection 
of God's deliverance and faithfulness that is prompting praise in the present moment. Maybe that tells us something more generally about praise. Like in praise, some of those things, some of the low points even fade away. That makes sense. Yeah, and and I think at times, and probably for me recently too, that has been a reason for me to shy away from praise because it feels to, like it because it doesn't have nuance, and I really value nuance sometimes too, way too much, but because it doesn't have nuance, it doesn't leave room kind of for the counter narrative to the narrative that's maybe dominating in whatever community you're part of. And sometimes feel like I need to shy away from it, but there is there is real value in recounting stories that are meaningful, in which you can identify God's work. I think keeping the realization in mind that praise is not the whole story, and I think the Psalms tell us that, that in our worship experience there is both room for praise and lament, and that both of those are valuable, necessary parts of what it means to be part of the people of God. If we can remember those things, that allows both our praise and our lament to become that more meaningful because we have a foundation in our tradition to see how both of those things are incredibly powerful and moving worship experiences. I feel like we're dancing on the edge of what's the point. Maybe we, we certainly sh- are. Maybe we just dive in and do that. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and Seth, I think for us, I think we kind of said it already, but I think we have an opportunity right now to, at least for me, kind of change my tone and change my mindset a little bit. And even just for a few moments, focus on gratitude, not in a way that erases the things that are frustrating or painful, but a way that for this moment grounds me in a realization of the way things are and that there are things we need to be grateful for. So like, I'm thinking about stories like this one of my own heritage that I'm really interested in. And I'm thinking specifically about my grandmother and my great-grandmother on my dad's side. So my dad's mom and my dad's dad's mom. They are incredible, incredible women. My my great-grandmother is a survivor of domestic abuse and was college-educated in the early 20th century. And now I don't know very much about what she studied, um, but I do know that both of those things are just examples of courageous dismantling of the patriarchy, even if that's not what she was setting out to do. Um, My grandmother was also college educated. She grew up and lived in New Jersey. And uh, in the early in the early 20s, she got on a train to Uh, just outside of Chicago, Illinois, and showed up at Wheaton College. Uh, And her first time seeing the campus was her arriving on the train to start college there. Wow. And I'm just thinking of these moments of, again, of courage, of going outside what is not only expected of them, but is what what might be even allowed for them. Um, My grandmother comes from a Dutch heritage, and, like, Dutch Christian Reformed 
theology is very important to a lot of the Dutch migrant community. And so there were only a few faith-based schools that kind of fell in line with that theological thinking, and Wheaton College was not one of them. And so for her to step even outside of that faith tradition in that small way is part of what led her to become the person that she that she became. She was a classmate of Jim and Elizabeth Elliot, the famous missionaries who came from Wheaton College. She was a classmate of theirs. And just the experiences that she had there, the way that formed her to become an educator herself. Um, and that's a, you know, she, she was a school teacher for the rest of her working career. And I'm proud to have, like, to know the ways that they push down barriers and hope to make opportunities for others to do the same as I pursue a career in education too. And I give thanks to God for their, not just for their experiences, but for the way that they developed a real deep, meaningful sense of faith through all of that. We didn't plan this, but my grandma has a very similar story. My grandma went to Millersville Normal School to which would later become Millersville Teachers College, um, and then later Millersville University. And I'm not, I'd have to do the math, basically. I'm not sure exactly what year, but my grandma was born in 1914. So it would have been probably uh, in the early 30s that my grandma went to, to Millersville Normal School. And it was, it was both really expensive to go there at the time, relative to how much money her family had. Um, she lived outside of York, and she would commute to Lancaster to go to school. And she said she had to pay money to cross the bridge to go to York from Lancaster. So when she would go to school, she said, I was just stuck there because I didn't have any money to come home. Hmm. But it's her job as a teacher that opened up a lot of doors for my own family. That also kind of inspires me to see all the teachers in my life. My dad is a teacher, I think partially because... He watched my grandma teach. My mom is a teacher. My wife, Patty, is a teacher. <laughs> I hope in some sense I'm sort of a teacher. So it's wonderful to see the way this, that those people those people benefited from, from kind of a privileged position. But like you talked about, they also pushed against some of the, some of the wider cultural structures. When my grandma became a teacher, she was single and it was really hard for her to find a job schools didn't want to hire young women who didn't have any kids and who weren't married because they just thought well when they get married and have kids they're not going to be a teacher anymore and then we have to find another teacher so my grandma kept assuring them that's not me like i'm going to have kids and i'm going to keep being a teacher and she would do that she had my dad and she also have an aunt uh, who's just a couple years older than my dad and my grandma taught through all of that, and she taught for 40 years in total. And some of them were in a little one-room schoolhouse outside of York, like by the Susquehanna River. It's amazing to see these stories intersect. This, this could be in the, the compare section of our autobiographies. <laughs> yeah, our, the, the incredible women from whom we are descended. And you know, just to go back to what we were mentioning earlier, obviously... Like, recounting these stories, it's so encouraging, and it, it just brings me such joy. My my grandmother, I, I'd never met my great-grandmother, and my, my grandmother just passed away 
about a year and a half ago now and I just her her memory is so cherished to me she taught me a lot including about faith but a lot of that was through baking and it's um baking bread is actually one of my most meaningful spiritual disciplines right now um because a it requires hard work and careful attention which i think is true of a lot of our spiritual disciplines uh, but it also remind it connects me to someone who i would consider a kind of pioneer of my faith uh, an early example an early encourager and someone who even to the very end of her life was still constantly praying for me and and our family and communicating and to say all this is not to again erase the the difficult aspects uh, or the ways that they they suffered the ways that they benefited from privilege uh, it's it is merely to say these things are giving us pause to remember and celebrate right now and that's worth doing that is the example of the psalmist is to say even if the story's not complete the story is still worth telling man where do we go from here i don't know it might be a good opportunity to pray though i'd like that living one today we remember the good you've done the judgment or the justice you proclaimed the healing that you've orchestrated help us to look back and look forward to keep doing good to keep proclaiming justice and to keep orchestrating healing in the name of the risen one jesus christ amen amen to our listeners thanks for joining us be sure to subscribe and tune in for our next episode seth what story will we tell next week Next week, we're talking about Genesis 31, 1 to 21. But until then, leave us a review and find us on Twitter and Instagram to continue the conversation. Thanks for walking us through that story, Jonathan. Thanks for helping me tell it.